Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and this is episode 557, where I'm going to fly solo and I'm going to talk about investing for founders. And there's an emphasis on retirement investing, investing for the future. I view investing as a long-term game, not something that is like playing the stock market and buying stocks. I don't buy individual stocks. And so we'll talk about how I view it and how I've viewed this this whole concept and how I've tried to simplify it for myself because as founders, we're busy with our work, our family, and the balance and friends. And oftentimes we don't want to spend a ton of time, but there is kind of an 80-20 or 90-10 approach to doing that. But before we dive in, I have a new review and I just had to read it. I really appreciate it. It's from Brian Ria in the US and he says, five stars, your bootstrapped startup MBA. This is the definitive podcast for founders who dream of building a sustainable, profitable business without sacrificing their personal wellness or relationships. If you want to hear hard-fought wisdom from real-life stories with a long-term perspective, this is the show for you. And that's very well written, sir. I really appreciate it. Brian is co-host of the Slow and Steady podcast with Benedict Dyka. And uh, I just, I appreciate you summarizing it like that. And I love that phrase, your bootstrapped startup MBA. So if you've been listening and getting value out of the podcast and want to give a little, little favor back, five stars in any of the uh, places that you listen to this podcast would help. It helps us find more users and listeners. We have actually been growing pretty well uh, over the past about 18 months to two years since I really put renewed focus on the podcast, redesigned the website, upped the, all the, the games, up the audio quality and the investment in, in research and time and guests and all that. It was just about two years ago. And basically the uh, subscriber base has been going up and to the right since then. So I really do appreciate it. You know, as always, welcome new and old listeners alike. So as we dive into this topic of investing for founders, obviously I have to start by giving a disclaimer. I'm not an investment advisor. This is not investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, I think is what I'm supposed to say. But this is what I did. Like this is what I've done throughout my life. And I essentially was able to retire at 41, I think. And that was from starting companies. So that was from making both profitable companies of, of being able to pull money off of them as well as as exiting companies. And I ha- actually have an essay that's unpublished that I may just turn into a Twitter thread later on, but it's about in order in my life, the things that I've made the most money from, and I don't give exact dollar amounts, but you know, the number one was selling companies, right? So exiting drip, exiting hit tail. And the number two is, I actually forget, I need to look the total up. It's close. It's either angel investing, because I was an early investor in WP Engine and several others that have, that have done reasonably well, or crypto currency. And I know that's going to, people are going to smack themselves in the head and say, no, not another podcast about crypto. But those are like the two and three. And then beyond that, it's, it's actually investing. It's having money that I can, you know, put into the stock market or whatever and get returns on. And then back in the day, it was just W2 earnings, you know, coming from what I was doing during the day as well as side projects. But for me, investing has always been a long-term game. And I actually started when I was probably, when I had my first job right around 20, as I was just exiting college, maybe 22, I opened up in the US, it's called an individual retirement account or an IRA. And I started putting a little bit of money in each month and putting that into index funds. And I had built up a few thousand dollars of that. And then that, like Warren Buffett says, it's all about the compounding because 
if you put in several thousand dollars when you're 20 versus several thousand dollars when you're 40, well, by the time you do get to retirement age of you know 65, that first extra 20 years can be just a massive, massive difference in, in how much you wind up with. There's this thing called the rule of 72, some of you may be familiar with, but you take whatever interest rate or you know your, your yield, your earnings on something, let's say the stock market is going to return 8% per year. So you take 72 and you divide it by what you're going to earn, the percent. So 72 divided by 8 is going to be 9. So every nine years, your money is going to double. And if you think about that $5,000 that I put in when I'm 20 is going to double to 10 at 29, and then it's going to double to 20 at 30, 38. And then let's see, I'm doing math in my head here. And then we go to uh, 47, and that's going to be 40,000. And then we go to 56, and that's going to be 80,000. And then we go to 65, I believe, and that's going to be 160,000. And that's $5,000 I put away when I was 20 versus if I put that away when I'm 40, it only doubles about two and a half times. The last couple doubles are what makes the difference. Think about the last doubles were from 40 to 80 to 160. So the difference between 40 grand and $160,000 in in future inflation adjusted earnings massively massively different. So that's where when I view investing and I don't mean investing in our companies, right? I mean I have to differentiate here. When I was building SaaS companies, I was all in on them and my time and effort and a lot of my money went into them, but I was always putting a little bit away on the side thinking this money's going to double, 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 you know, over these next, whatever, 30, 40 years and, until I actually retire. The interesting thing about that rule of 72 is think about if you can earn 10% or 12% on your money, at a certain point it becomes kind of ridiculous, especially in, in today's market, it's hard to, really hard and really risky to try to earn 10 or 12%, even though historically the stock market has returned that. If you look at it over the next 10 years, it's not set. It's not likely to do that given how high valuations are. But if you could earn 12% year after year, approximately, then it doubles every six years and you get even more doubles. So starting early, you know, is even more important. And I'm going to dive into some very specific things here. I have a whole outline that I'm going to dive into in a second. But the bottom line is when I was building SaaS companies, I didn't pay a ton of attention to this, but I still had this on autopilot. And then once I exited Drip and, and things got less complex in my life, then I actually did pay a lot more attention to it. But then I also had enough money that it made sense to make things more complicated. Before that, when I was playing, you know, by the time we sold Drip, we had between my wife and I, we had, I think it was around four hundred dollars or $500,000 to our name that did not count Drip. And that was all earned from working the day job, squirreling money away, squirreling money into 401ks, which are a United States employer-provided retirement thing, squirreling money into IRAs, building small side software products, taking the profit from those, selling those, you know, some very small angel investment. I mean, we just kind of cobbled that together. I had none of that. I mean, when we got married, we had, you know, $2,000 to our name, literally, and I was making $17 an hour as an electrician. And so to get to that point of wealth was was pretty significant, but it wasn't enough money that it made sense for me to spend a ton of time working and focusing on it because fiddling little bits with a few hundred thousand dollars doesn't move the needle. Fiddling little bits and optimizing with several million dollars does. And that's, this is, again, this is my opinion. This is, this is what I've done. So that's the mindset. While I'm in growth mode, while I'm building startups, I want 
autopilot, but I still want to be doing something. And then for me, since I'm interested in this as a, because I'm a nerd and it's like a personal finance and, and investing as a hobby, then I made it complex, but you don't have, you don't have to do that. It doesn't have to be complex. All right. I'm going to cover four things. Then I'm going to talk about some additions and some ways you can allocate and this and that. First thing is you want to get an emergency fund of three to six months of cash in a place that is not going to get cut in half if the stock market plummets. So usually that's cash in a, a savings account, not in a CD, a certificate of deposit where it's tied up and you can't get easy access to it. And this depends on your risk tolerance. You know, do you think you can get be employed next month if everything is going to crash and burn, if your company collapses? Is it going to take you three months to kind of get your, your feet under you? Is it going to take you six months? That's the general range. As you get more money, I will say at this point, we have quite a bit more than six months of complete living expenses in, in cash, in accounts, because we can. And, and it doesn't detract from earnings on investments. But again, early on, it was always, we started building a nest egg of, hey, we have three months, that's great, now let's put a little more into retirement. And then over time, we'd buy a house, so we'd have to pull some money out of that for a down payment, and then we'd re rebuild it back. So somewhere between three and six months is kind of the first thing to do, in case your car breaks down, in case a tree falls and hits your house, in case you need a desperate house repair, like you need some cash so that you don't have to sell stock or sell crypto or sell gold or sell whatever it is you, you know, you're going to own in order to pay these expenses that kind of up. It's an emergency fund, right? In addition, I would say I heard someone who had like 18 months or two years of savings and it was all in cash. Well, that's a mistake on the other side because inflation destroys that cash. Not only does inflation make it worth less every year, let's say 2%, 3-4% in today's environment, but then you're not also getting the stock market gains. If you look at what the stock market, whether it's US or worldwide, has made in the past 12, 18, 24 months, it's a lot of money you're leaving on the table. So I wouldn't take all of that money, if I had two years saved up, I personally, I would consider taking, you know, 18 months of that and putting it into the market. I'm all also willing, if you put it into the market, you got to be willing to have it get cut in half at the next, you know, big drop and then, and then build back up over time. So that's number one, getting that emergency fund in. Number two is to max out every retirement plan you can get your hands on. So if you are working a day job and you have an employer-sponsored retirement program, again, they're called, in the U.S., they're called 401ks. I know they have different names elsewhere in the world, but a 401k with matching is like free money. And so I would always max mine out to the match. And I'm going to talk in a second about what I then put that into. It's asset allocation. Where do you allocate you know, the money to? But for now, I would put in 401ks and then individual retirement plans if they're available to you as well. So we opened IRAs way back in the day, individual retirement accounts when we were again, 22, and started putting money in there. And if you do have a choice, this is a rule of thumb, this is what I did, not investment advice, but in the US there are traditional IRAs, which is where you take your money out pre-tax. So before you pay taxes on it in your paycheck, it goes to your IRA, you get a write-off for that. And then when you take the money out, years down the line when it has all this earnings and growth, well then you pay income tax on it as you draw it out. The other option is to do a Roth IRA, and Roths have only existed for, I think, 20 or 25 years maybe, not that long, where I get my paycheck today, taxes are already come out of it, and I put after-tax money into the IRA, and then it grows, and then I, I don't pay taxes on it when I withdraw on the other end. I never have to pay taxes again. And if given the choice, Roth IRAs are usually the better decision, because not only do you not pay tax on the other end, but the limits of how much you can contribute to a Roth and a traditional are the same. 
So since you're paying tax on the money already, it's a mind bender, paying tax on the money already, you can get more money into a Roth. It's the same amount, but it's after tax. So I'm not going to go further into that. Oh, other, other than to say, also traditional IRAs have a required minimum distribution at age something, 70 or 72, that Roths do not. And so there's just a bunch of pluses. So I think we only have Roths, except for there have been times where we've been required to have a traditionals for some reason. And so we have a few, but most of my stuff is, is in Roths. So that was number two, maxing out retirement plans. The third one is actually once you start a company, if you have start an LLC, C-Corp, S-Corp, you can, and you have revenue and profit, you can then open, potentially, depending on what country you're in, you can open these things, they're like simple IRAs and SCP IRAs that are company related, or you could open 401ks and then you can funnel even more money in that. So that's kind of number three. And that was something my accountant guided me on early on in our investing because IRAs, if you're on your own and you're not working for a company, IRAs, you can only put in five or $6,000 a year. It's not very much money compared to what you could potentially earn as an entrepreneur. Simples and SEPs, they have different formulas, but you can put sometimes twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in those. And that allows you to actually tax shield your money because that's the biggest problem you're going into is taxes chew through a lot of your money. And so anything you can tax shield by getting it into these retirement accounts, again, assuming you don't need them for a really long time, that's the way to do it. But the fourth thing is life insurance. And life insurance is, is the worst. Like, it, I hate the topic. It's boring. There's term insurance and there is whole life insurance. I have been taught to, from people I respect and trust, that whole life insurance is something to be avoided. And when you're young, you get a 30 or 40 year term life insurance. Premiums are small. And that's what you do. And you insure yourself for whatever half a million bucks. And then as you get older, you have to renew that. The premiums go up. And at a certain point, hopefully you have enough money that you can self-insure and that you don't need life insurance anymore. Because again, if you have $10 million in the bank and you don't really need half a million or a million dollars of life insurance because you have enough that everybody can live forever on that money. And so I've had a couple of life insurance providers. I have heard good things about and actually had a good experience with Haven Life. I think they're a little more expensive than a lot of the others, um, but I heard about them from on the Stacking Benjamins podcast. And I think you can use, there's like a code like Stacking Benjamins or Benjamins or something that, that you can use. But Haven Life has, a re, if you're a healthy person, they have a real easy sign-up process. And so I'm not endorsing them from, I've done all this intense research about them, but going through the process myself, I felt like things look, looked good to me. And it was much easier than the first time I got life insurance where they like came to my house and did blood tests and did, it was, it was crazy. I didn't realize that they, they went to that length, but I guess if they're betting on your longevity, that's something they do. So as we transition, uh, just a couple more topics. One is the asset allocation of like, okay, so I put all these money in the, you know, in these retirement accounts, but where should I actually, you know, where should I consider putting it? Well, that's asset allocation now. And then I have the, if you want to make things more complicated section, which I think is where most people will, will turn this off. But it's like, in my opinion, Index funds are the way to go. Index funds are these, they have very low expense ratios. They're not actively managed funds and they're not as volatile as individual stocks and you don't have to manage them and watch them and see if they earned this much and their earnings are down and so they, they go up and they go down and Apple and Facebook are in a lawsuit and blah, blah, blah. Index fund owns a bunch of stocks, sometimes thousands, and they just track an index. Usually, if I'm going to do it, it's a whole stock market. And the two places that I like the best are Vanguard and Charles Schwab. And again, these are US-based. So if you're in Canada, if you're in Europe, it's all different. But 
basically, the reason I like them is the expense ratios are ridiculously low. And so, because that's the worst part of using funds, index funds or mutual funds, is that if you get an active manager, then they charge you a fee of half a percent or 1% a year. And it's this big drag on your returns versus these index funds where there's a, you know, VTSAX, which is a Vanguard total stock market fund. It's US only. But the index or the the charge on them is, you know, five basis points, like 0.05 or 0.1 basis point. Like it's ridiculously low. can be a fifth or a tenth of of a lot of other providers. So again, Vanguard and Schwab, I think, are definitely the places that I would would invest in. And VTSAX, some people just say put all your money in there. Personally, I don't like being only US-based. It just doesn't make sense to me because the rest of the world has a lot of companies that are doing a lot of interesting things, especially in the 2020s. Um, This is not whatever, still the 1960s or 70s when things like Vanguard and Schwab were, were really coming up. But there is this thing, it's very simple. It's called the Lazy Portfolio, and we're going to put a link to it in the show notes. And while there are several variations of it, and you'll see it's almost a crowdsourced thing, the variation that I like is the simplest and the laziest. And I don't even know if it's in the article we're going to link to. The one I think is the simplest is a single fund lazy portfolio. And it's to basically put all the money that you want in stocks into one fund. And with Vanguard, it's called the Total World Stock Index Fund. And so I would do a 100% allocation. Obviously, you, you have cash on the side in your emergency fund, but that's it. It's just that simple. Everything's in equities as long as you're not nearing retirement and you have a a cash reserve, that emergency fund I said earlier. Personally, I am someone who has a higher risk tolerance and I don't I don't love the stock bond. I don't I'm not gonna put a bunch of my money in bonds, you know, especially with as low as the yields are today. I think that maybe as I'm nearing retirement, I want to soften the blow, right? It just makes the ride a little less bumpy. But I prefer just to have cash, given that bond yields are so terrible. So then there are ways to mix it up. You can do three fund lazy portfolios. There, There's a four fund portfolio. You can get as fancy as you want with it. But again, if I were in your shoes and this is the path that we took, I kept it simple. And we did essentially a lazy portfolio and didn't get any more complex than that, and didn't watch it very closely, just had money auto-deducted every month as much as we could into these IRAs or just into a straight brokerage account with Vanguard or Schwab or whoever you choose, and was just buying into these things, dollar cost averaging over time. When the stock market would go down, we'd keep buying in every month, and so we'd buy more, and when it would go up, we'd make money, and then we'd buy, you know, you'd be buying less, and so you're averaging the cost of your, you know, of your purchases over time. So that's really it. I mean, that was a long time to you know say just a, a few simple things, but that is to me the way that as an entrepreneur who's running a company, that's how simple I want it to be, right? As I think about taking it to the next step, which again, once we sold Drip, then I was like, okay, now I have more assets to manage. I can go to a personal finance or an investment advisor, or I can do this stuff myself, which you of course can if, if you decide you want to. And it gets more complicated. And this is if you want to go beyond index funds. And so this is where we started looking at diversifying into things like angel investments, which we had already been making anyways. And so do I think that it's not bad to have some riskier bets if you do have a good amount of cash, if you do have a good chunk of money in equities and public stocks that are going to be going up over time, but they're going to you know potentially have a, a bumpy ride over time. Do I think it's interesting to have some really risky bets like angel investments, like up to three to five percent of your net worth if you're if you're able to do this through crowdfunding or through being an accredited investor? 
I do. It's not investment advice, but this is what I did. And a couple of those bets have paid off and have made a substantial amount of money, much, much more than I've put into all the angel investments. And it won't necessarily do that for everyone, but to me, it's it's nice to have that. I don't want all my money in the public stock markets. I'll put it that way. And in fact, I was saying having it all in is not a big deal. And that's what I had it for years. Once we had you know enough money that never have to work again, I wanted less and less of that money in public stock markets because I think there are other ways to make really interesting returns once you start going beyond index funds and getting into fiddly bits. And one of them is angel investments. So up to 5% of your net worth. Sure, I think that's reasonable. I think some people might say up to 10%. That feels like a lot to me. It's a personal preference. Do I think you should probably maybe own some metals, whether that's physical metals, you want to own gold or platinum or silver, or whether you can buy ETFs with metals in? I don't think that's a bad idea. The more diverse you get your portfolio, usually the smoother the ride gets because some things are going up as other things are going down. That's portfolio theory. But owning three to 5% metals, not a bad idea. And those aren't, while they're publicly traded, they are not really public stocks and they shouldn't, historically shouldn't follow the stock market directly and their edge against inflation. There's just reasons to own them. Do I think, and this is going to be a controversial one, did we start buying crypto? Back in 2016, dollar cost averaging in over the course of many, many months, maybe even a year? Yes. Do I think owning 3% of your portfolio, 5% of your portfolio in crypto, depending on your risk tolerance, is not a bad idea? Hey, I viewed them as an angel investment. I will put it that way, that we figured these things are either going to 10x or 100x, or they're going to go to zero. And we were willing to risk 3 to 5%. Again, we didn't do this back in the day when we had a few hundred thousand dollars in net worth. Although I guess, you know, let's say you have 300,000 totaling in kind of assets you can move around and you put 3%, that's nine grand. Do I think that's an interesting bet? Yeah, if you dollar cost average in. I'm the kind of person who likes to, again, not have all my eggs in the public markets. And so I'm always looking for other drivers. Am I a crypto purist or someone who could really explain to you why crypto makes sense and, and all the things about whether it's going to be adopted? No. But I bought a few cryptocurrencies. Those have paid off. And I think uh, dollar cost averaging over time was, was the way to go. Do I think the next thing, and it's something that, that we're invested in, but I don't necessarily recommend it unless it's a hobby, is collectibles, like higher end collectibles, like art, sports cards, comic books, and those things. That's been a hobby of mine. I think having up to 5% of that is interesting. And of course, you know, some people dabble in real estate. I don't like owning physical real estate that has to be managed, but of course, owning REITs, real estate investment trusts, you know, up to 5 or 10% is totally reasonable. I've tried all the things. I've tried peer to peer lending, tried the online real estate, hard money lending. The taxes are really high. The returns are so-so. I haven't, I felt like it was time consuming and wasn't worth it. And these other ways were more my style. And, you know, I guess one last point before I kind of wrap up is I actually going against the, I think traditional wisdom is I try to keep as little cash in my home as possible. Some people want to pay their home off, but I view, I view cash in a home as money that's tied up and money that I can't be using for all these other things, money I can't be investing into my business, investing into other companies or metals or crypto or collectibles or stock market or whatever. And there are two schools of thought on that, obviously, because you, if you borrow money against your house and then put it in other things and that goes down, then that's a risk, right? Because you're levered. But that's for each person to decide. My thinking has certainly changed on that over the years. I know that back in the day, we wanted to pay our house off and would make extra payments. And over the years, I realized, boy, do I really want all this cash tied up here? Cash is king and queen. I prefer to have 
as little of that as possible tied up in an illiquid asset like my home. Lastly, before I sign off, I hope this was helpful. This was this was fun for me to talk through and try to get all of my thinking on this into, you know, whatever, a 30-minute podcast episode. There are a couple other podcasts, if you want to dive more into this, that I'd recommend. One is my favorite podcast on personal finance and investing, and it's called Money for the Rest of Us. So pretty easy to remember if you listen to the show. Jay David Stein does a great job of just being even keeled and not crazy. You know, when things go up and down, he just is pretty, pretty even keeled. I actually pay for his, he has a plus membership, which is a couple hundred dollars a year where he gives like even in-depth analysis of the markets and stuff. But there's a free podcast that comes out every week and, and it's, a, it's a really good resource. And then there's two others that I used to listen to and it depends on if I'm in the mood to kind of nerd out and get into personal finance or back into investing and hear about all the stuff I've mentioned in this episode week to week, I listen to these, but I go through long stints. Like I think it's been a year since I've listened to them, but they are two of the, you know, when I went through 20 personal finance podcasts, it's like these are two in addition to Money for the Rest of Us. I still listen to Money for the Rest of Us every week, but these other two have not been in my feed for a while, but I do revisit them now and again. So one is called Stacking Benjamins, and it's just an entertaining podcast, kind of goofy with bad jokes and stuff. And then the other one is Afford Anything, which is is solid. I did feel like it got a bit repetitive, and it's also a bit millennial for my taste. I don't know if that makes sense, but a lot of this stuff, it, it's more into the fire movement, financial independence, retire early, where it's like, I'm going to save up $400,000 in a bank account, and then I'm going to live on $16,000 a year, and I'm, I make the 4% rule work. And that's how I'm going to live. And I think, yeah, that's great if I was like 20, you know, or 25. But like, it's just a whole different mindset than than where I am. But that's not the sole focus of the show. This show is still really well done. And, and I think the host is amazing. Paula is wise and, and knows a lot of stuff. So with that, I think we will call this episode a wrap. Thanks so much for joining me again this week. And we'll be back next week with a regularly scheduled conversation with an interesting founder. Maybe we'll do some listener questions. Maybe we'll do some bootstrapper news, but it's been great chatting with you today. And I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.